Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to Shaker Heights, Episode 3, The Crush. 16-year-old Lisa Pruitt was stabbed 21 times by an unknown assailant on September 14, 1990, in Shaker Heights, Ohio, a well-to-do suburb on Cleveland's east side. Her body was found about 100 feet from her boyfriend's back door, where he lived with his parents and sister. This boyfriend, Dan Dryford, had been released from a mental institution earlier that day. After the murder, Dan's friends gathered to discuss the murder and likely suspects. We'll never know exactly what was discussed at these private meetings of grief-stricken children. But we know that after those meetings, Dan's friends went to Shaker Heights police detectives and said they believed that Kevin Young had killed Lisa Pruitt out of jealousy over her relationship with Dan. The police searched Kevin's house and found no murder weapon or bloody clothes, nothing at all to link him to the crime scene, and he had an alibi. As the investigation continues, an interview with 18-year-old Stanley Kramer implicates Dan Dreifert's father, and a possible conspiracy of silence. By now, Shaker Heights police detectives have interviewed the men and women who had the means, motive, and opportunity to commit the crime, and they've heard from a handful of teenagers at Shaker Heights High School who regard Kevin Young with hatred and suspicion. The case takes a turn that Monday, just three days after Lisa's murder. That's when the police detectives decide it was Kevin Young who committed the crime. What follows is a statement by a lead detective in the case, which explains how FBI profilers helped convince them it was probably Kevin who committed the crime.
On Monday, September 17, 1990, I was contacted by Special Agent Dick Wren of the Federal Bureau of Investigation relative to the Lisa Pruitt homicide. Agent Wren advised me that he was the case agent for the Amy Mihaljevic case and offered to assist us in any way he could. He further informed me that due to the circumstances surrounding the Pruitt case, that he would need to inquire as to any similarities between the Mihaljevic and Pruitt homicides. I invited Agent Wren to come to our station and review our reports and other information that we had accrued. Agent Wren advised that he would visit our station at approximately 1 p.m. that afternoon. I was unable to meet with Agent Wren when he arrived at the station due to the fact that I was at the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office with Detective Sergeant Timothy Reed, preparing a search warrant for the resident of Kenneth Tex Workman. Agent Wren and Agent John Dunn met with other members of the Investigative Bureau and reviewed reports and evidence from the Pruitt homicide. Upon returning from the County Prosecutor's Office, Detective Sergeant Timothy Reed Detective Robert Shipling, and Detective David Kives executed the search warrant at 2626 North Moreland, apartment number 2, the residence of Kenneth Workman. See supplementary report by Sergeant Reed. There was nothing of evidentiary value located during the search. Later that afternoon, while searching through several plastic trash bags that were removed from the residence of Kevin Young during a search of his residence on Sunday morning, September 16, 1990, Investigators located several documents that contained writings and paraphrases that indicated that Kevin Young had some sort of behavioral problem. The writings referred to Kevin's disdain for Jews, Arabs, and blacks. He further remarked about his own problems with developing relationships with females. Other writings revealed his inner feelings when he observed couples, male and female, acting out their affection for one another. Further examination of the documents indicated an interest in Satanism and Neo-Nazism, specifically skinheads. There were several documents that referred to suicide. After all the documents were examined, I contacted Agent Wren and advised him as to what we had found. I asked him if he knew anyone locally who could review the writings and offer us an opinion on what they meant. Agent Wren referred me to Supervisory Special Agent James Wright at the FBI Academy's Behavioral Science Section in Quantico, Virginia. I attempted to make contact with Agent Wright, but was unable to do so due to the late hour. On Wednesday, September 18, 1990, I made contact with Agent Wright. He asked me to fax him all available documents relative to Kevin Young. He further related that he would review the documents that same evening. I gathered all of the documents, 37 pages worth, and had them faxed to Agent Wright. The transmission was completed at 12.34 p.m. On Thursday, September 19, 1990, at 10.30 a.m., Agent Wright contacted me by telephone and advised me that he had reviewed the writings of Kevin Young and the details of the police report of the murder of Lisa Pruitt. He stated that it was his opinion from the information that he had examined that the murder was definitely a, quote, neighborhood thing, unquote, and that the person that we were looking for knew Lisa Pruitt. Agent Wright then gave me a personality profile on what he had learned concerning Kevin Young. He related that Kevin's personality profile definitely fit that of a person capable of committing the crime in question. He further remarked that we should look at other sexual assaults that have been reported in the past. Agent Wright went on to state that Kevin Young has no ego, low self-esteem. He probably realizes that people don't like him. He then offered some suggestions for any further interviews with Kevin. Agent Wright suggested that Kevin Young be interviewed at night, the later the better. He described Kevin as a night person. He further suggested that the interview should take place in a non-threatening environment, not in an interrogation room. The interviewer must be able to bond with Kevin, quote, provide a friend, unquote. The interviewer should be mature-looking, articulate, and intelligent. 
he must not resemble Kevin's father or have an authoritative personality. Agent Wright then proffered the following interview structure. 1. Don't start off the interview by being threatening, but do create some anxiety in the subject. Show him something from the scene. Put it off to the side within his peripheral vision. Things from the scene might, quote, tweak him. 2. Give the subject a face-saving scenario. Two Kevins, good and bad. Quote, he lost control. He's not really responsible. End quote. Refer to his writings. Quote, if I ever lose control of myself, withdraw into an alternative world and let animal instincts take over. This is from an essay written by Kevin Young dated January 9th, 1990. Three, explain that the problem needs to be resolved. Four, be careful not to be judgmental. Five, don't be confrontational. And six, you can expect a lot of denial for a long, long time. After speaking with Agent Wright, I advised him that I was not sure that I had an interviewer with expertise in dealing with the type of personality that he describes. I further advised him that depending on laboratory results, the success or failure of this investigation hinged on the interview with Kevin Young. Agent Wright offered to assist in any way he could other than personally conducting the interview. I then asked if he would assist in preparing the interviewer. I told him that I would be willing to come to Quantico with the selected interviewer if he could make his staff available to us for whatever period of time that he thought was necessary. Agent Wright reiterated that he would help in any way possible. On Friday, September 21, 1990, at 2 p.m., Agent Wren, Agent Dunn, members of the Investigative Bureau, Chief Ugrenick, and I met in the conference room. We decided at that meeting that Kevin Young was our primary suspect and that we should make arrangements as soon as possible to meet with Agent Wright at Quantico. Agent Dunn offered his assistance and advised that he would be willing to accompany us to Quantico for the interview preparation session. After the meeting, I contacted Agent Wright and advised him of the results of our meeting. Agent Wright stated that he would be available to meet with us on Tuesday, September 25, 1990 at 11 a.m. and that he would be at our disposal for as long as it took to structure our interview. Chief Walter A. Ugrenick, after consulting with members of the Investigative Bureau, assigned Detective Sergeant Thomas Gray as the primary interviewer and Detective Thomas Kahansky as the backup interviewer. He further approved travel and expenses for the trip to Quantico for Sergeant Thomas Gray, Detective Richard Mullaney, Special Agent John Dunn, and myself. On Tuesday, September 25, 1990, we departed from Cleveland Hopkins Airport at 8.35 a.m. via Continental Airlines Flight Number 268B and arrived at Washington National Airport at approximately 9.45 a.m. We leased a vehicle from the airport and arrived at the FBI Academy in Quantico at 11 a.m. as scheduled. We then met in the Behavioral Sciences Unit with Supervisory Special Agent James Wright and three members of his staff. Special Agent Dave Gomez, Special Agent Greg Cooper, and Special Agent Jana Monroe. The session began with us providing a detailed description of the crime scene, all events leading up to the murder, and all events succeeding the murder. They viewed all photographs, illustrations, and documents concerning the case. Each named suspect was described with the reason or reasons why they were still suspected or eliminated as a suspect. Their initial response was to point out the deep anger that was demonstrated throughout this crime. They felt this anger was demonstrated both in the type of stab wounds and in the force used to break Lisa's rib. The anger also showed in the high-risk scenario that surrounded Lisa's death. They also felt that, based on the crime scene, that the knife was a weapon of choice, not a weapon of opportunity. Agent Wright and his staff then shared with us a profile of Kevin Young. They described Kevin Young as a, quote, John Hinckley-type personality. 
He described Hinckley as a person who fantasized about women from afar. He further explained that Hinckley often wrote letters describing romantic interludes with women that he had never been acquainted with. They felt that the papers from Kevin indicated that he had, at one time, had some type of homosexual experience, which would explain his, quote, homophobia. They described Kevin as very immature and childish and emotionally way behind his peers. They estimated that he had the emotional development of an 11 or 12-year-old and added that he probably had difficulty dealing with his peers, but that he could function socially with both younger children and adults. They also felt that, because he was emotionally behind his peers, Kevin was threatened by Dan Dreefert through Lisa Pruitt. They felt his papers also indicated he had no self-respect. Their profile on Kevin also led them to believe that he had justified his actions to himself before he did it. One of their biggest concerns was that now that he had killed, it would be easier for him to kill again. They felt he had many traits of a serial killer. We then focused on developing an approach for the interviewer. They suggested that the interview be conducted away from any police settings, preferably in a motel suite. They also suggested that the interview be conducted by one person and not recorded in any way. It would be easier for Kevin to trust one person and to trust that person if there was no recording of the interview. They explained how to get Kevin to record the, quote, truth, unquote, after the interview. They also reminded us of the importance of having a supply of pop and cigarettes, and of being prepared to handle meals and sleeping arrangements as the interview went on. They told us up front that they felt Kevin would want to tell us what happened, and that it would probably take him a long time. They also suggested that the interview be done at night, the later the better, due to Kevin's nocturnal tendencies. The approach, location, and wording would all have to be a soft approach. They stressed the importance of having enough patience to let him sit and talk, to build his ego, and to discuss his interests. They also focused on the issue that Kevin must feel that the interviewer cares about him for the interview to be a success. Our approach was to be that the interviewer has the ability to help Kevin, to present the truth to the prosecutor, and to be an outsider to the system that will help him. Agent Wright suggested we could reinforce this with thoughts along the line of, quote, My boss thinks you're a killer, end quote. We also wanted to express our concern for the urgency of the matter that resulted in our late afternoon trip to Columbus. The initial setup of the interview was all soft tones and all aimed at building trust and confidence. They felt that given Kevin's personality, that he would have a difficult time talking to anyone about what happened. However, they suggested that his intellectual approach to everything could be used to our advantage. They thought his personality would let him explain what had happened as a theoretical, quote, third person. We decided to address the interview first in the third person. They felt that if he was involved, Kevin's personality would encourage him to discuss what happened in the third person. It was felt that if Kevin had an opportunity to justify and rationalize what was done, then it would be easier for him to confess. It would be critical at this point to be non-judgmental about anything that Kevin said. The next part of the interview would be indirect questioning. These would address our concerns in non-threatening ways. These questions would be in the form of putting him in the shoes of the person who did this to Lisa and asking him things like, what would this person do with the knife, with bloody clothes, or with bloody hands? The next topic was a polygraph. They discussed the importance of good polygraph questions. For someone like Kevin, the questions would have to key into stress areas of the actual interview. They felt that someone like Kevin might pass a polygraph with standard questions. Suggested questions were, did you get blood on yourself? And, did you get in a fight? The last part of the interview, if needed, would be the confrontational part. During this section, we would present to Kevin an overwhelming amount of why we thought he was involved. Kevin would then be asked to help the interviewer explain the evidence presented. 
We also discussed the importance of doing the same type interview on the parents during the time that we were talking to Kevin. Agent Wright and his staff then discussed interviewing techniques to help build and reduce stress in the interview. This included questions, voice control, and body positioning. We also discussed items to have at hand. The first were some non-threatening pictures of the area where Lisa was killed. They suggested no more than three or four, and we discussed how to use them in the interview as an aid for Kevin to visualize the scene. The second item was a computer printout of our information on Kevin, in a binder with his name on it and with some tabs marking key thoughts. This would be useful during the confrontational portion and would add stress during the rest of the interview. We then reviewed what we had covered. They stressed again that we had to show Kevin that we really cared, that our job was to find the truth, and that we were neutral and were there to present the truth to the justice system. While detectives have decided to focus on Kevin Young as their prime suspect, they have actually not yet finished with their witness interviews. On Tuesday, they finally sit down with 16-year-old Dan Messenger, who provides important context for the final hours of Lisa Pruitt's life. Dan Messenger also gives us our first insight into one of those secret meetings of Dan's friends, which happened the morning after the murder, when a handful of teenagers made the decision that it had to be Kevin Young, the weird kid in school, who committed the crime. I met Lisa in the third grade at Ludlow Elementary School, and since then I've been close friends pretty much ever since. I met Daniel Dreifert uh, when he got on the bus in seventh grade, but I became close friends with him in German class in ninth grade. I met Chris Jones in 10th grade in science class, and we, we became very close. I met Kevin Young, basically, in 10th grade, and I'll just say that. I met Tex in the 10th grade, a little while after we moved here. On Thursday, September 13th, 1990, I knew that Dan was coming home, and I had talked to both Dan and Lisa about it, and I knew if he wasn't coming home on the 13th, he would be coming home soon. I was uh, sitting after school in my German classroom, When I heard someone say, Dan, and I looked up and Dan and Lisa were together and Dan was waving at me. I immediately went out of the room and I talked with both of them and I was very excited. Lisa said that she should uh, go and try to get her driver's license. And so she and Dan would go and Dan would see her off and Dan said he would come back and see me in a few minutes in the German room. I went back to the German room and I left momentarily. I went looking for Dan, but I didn't find him until I went outside and I saw Dan Dreifert and Chris Jones on their bikes. Dan asked me why I wasn't in the German room because he had walked past it and I wasn't there. I said because I left right away. We talked about trying to get together and we decided that I'd ride with Chris on his bike and Dan would ride his bike over to my house. We went over to my house and I got my bike and we rode our bikes over to Chris's apartment. It was at Chris's apartment's where we went inside and we talked a lot. I was very excited. We ate some of Chris's snicker bars and Dan had some letters in his backpack that he had received from Lisa that he had not yet read and was going to read them later. Chris was getting dressed to go fencing, so at around 5.30 p.m. he left and went to go fencing. Dan and I also left and decided that we would go to Leslie Roach's house. When we got over there, Leslie gave Dan a big hug. 
Actually, now that I think about it, we saw Kara Smith walking down the street. Dan and her hugged first. Then we walked over to Leslie's house with our bikes. And that's where Leslie gave Dan a hug. At Leslie's house, I began walking around a lot, just being nervous for some reason. And Dan sat and talked to Leslie, Kara. We also went outside and Dan and I and Leslie's little brother threw around a football. We left Leslie's. I went home and Dan went home. This was around 6 p.m., I believe. I called my voice tell mailbox to see if I had any messages, and Lisa had called. It was 5.23 p.m. that she had called. She was very excited. She said she had a great day and that she wanted me to call her back. I was going to save the message, but for some reason, I deleted it. Then I called Lisa back, and she had told me how great of a day it was because Dan had gotten home, and she had gotten her driver's license. She said she would be Dan, Chris's, and my chauffeur, but that we couldn't fool around too much because she knew we would. She said that she had to go to her flute lesson soon, but she would call me later that night, and then we said goodbye. The thing before that I forgot was that when Dan and I left from Leslie Roach's house, Dan said that he would give me a call later that night as well. That's all I know definitely from that night, as far as I can remember. The next day I was called around 5 a.m. I did not wake up and my parents received a call. The call was from Linda Mayer, who is my German teacher, and she told me what had happened to Lisa. I was woken between 5 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. and my parents told me what had happened, as far as they knew, which was that Lisa had been murdered and that it happened at Lee and South Woodland. Between 6 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. I called Christopher Jones and I told him what had happened. I was afraid and he wouldn't find out until later. And because he was also a very good friend of Lisa's, I felt that it was important that he find out in early time. Chris told me that he didn't believe me and that I should stop joking around. He said that he would talk to me later that day in school and hung up the phone. About 20 minutes later, Chris called me back and asked me, is it really true? Catherine Schultz had called him also and told him what had happened. When Chris called me back, we decided that we would go over to Catherine's house where Regina Rader, Christian Schlang, and Kim Cole were also there. My father drove us over, and on the way over, we listened to the news report on 1100 AM radio. And this was at 7 AM. It said that a Shaker Heights girl had been murdered and that she was raped and bludgeoned to death. At Catherine's, we all talked and cried. And when we got over there, Kim Cole was talking to Kim Rathbone. When she got off the phone, she told us that Kim Rathbone had told her that she had heard screams. Brian and Adam Keating, Jeff Michael, Charlie Martin also went over to Catherine's that morning. We all shared the information that we all knew at the time. Around 8.30 a.m., I went to school with Jeff, Michael, Charlie Martin, and Kristen. At school, a large group of friends such as Judy Miller, Jennifer Margulies, Rachel Lowenthal, Tanya Manisi, where all of Lisa's and Dan's close friends basically gathered in the band room to share everything we knew about what had happened. Jeff Steer kept trying to call Dan Dreifert, but never got through to him. We were told he was at the police station being questioned. At second period, around 9 a.m., I went to my math class with Kristen Schlang, who was also in the class. There, Reverend Hyvonen talked to us all and tried to comfort us. The next period, we went to German class, where a lot of us who weren't even in German went. This was basically Lisa's close friends again, a lot of people I've mentioned before. Here, Linda Mayer, 
Reverend Hyvonen, another clergyman, and they all talked to us and tried to help us. After this, most of us went back to the band room again, and we just talked about the great things that Lisa had done in her life. Midway through the period, we all went back to Catherine's house. When we got to Catherine's, Ted Folkman, Judy Miller, Regina Rader, Kristen Schlang, and myself went to pick up flowers for Lisa's family. We got back, and a few people brought these flowers to Lisa's house. At around 2 p.m., Ted Folkman took me home because he was also taking Jeff Steer home and I had planned to go with him and a few others to Temple that evening. Once I got home, I told my parents that I was going over to the murder scene and that I just wanted to see everything for myself. I walked over and I saw the tape. I asked a few policemen if anything had been discovered that they could tell me about. No one had anything to say. At this time, Hallie Warren and Jennifer Shook saw me and stopped their car and parked their car, and then they came over. They said they had talked to my parents, and my parents told them where I was. At this particular time, I saw a man who had a Channel 5 camera. I walked over because I wanted to hear what they had to say. I asked the reporter if I could just hear his comments, and that was it. He said it was okay. He also told me about the 3 p.m. press conference at City Hall. I heard what he had to say, and once he was done, he asked me questions, which I didn't really answer. He was more interested in about Dan than Lisa. At 3 p.m., we were at City Hall. We sat down in the second row, but because we were behind the cameras, I moved to the other side so I could see the chief clearly. I stayed for the entire time, and when it was over, I was ready to leave. A few people from the press came over to talk to me, but I had no comment except to say how great Dan and Lisa were, both as people and as a couple. I also talked to the chief and said that if he wanted to talk to me, I'd be willing to talk. I also spoke to the woman in charge of the dealing with the media from the police. I think the public relations director she was. At this time, I did not feel that I was in the right state to talk about anything that had happened. So I got in Jennifer Shook's car with, my, with Hallie and Jennifer, and we were driving, planning on going to my house and I noticed that the tape had been taken off Lee in South Woodland. I saw Deb Dreifert pull out of Dan's driveway and I asked if Dan was home. She said, yeah, go on in. We pulled into the driveway next to Dan's and I ran up to see Dan. At this time, Judy Miller, Rachel Lowenthal, Christopher Jones, and I were all at Dan's house. I don't remember if anyone else was there. Dan and I talked and he told me that he would tell me what happened later when other people were not around. A few minutes later, at around 4.30 p.m., most of Dan's other friends left. I called my parents and told them that when Ted Folkman called to tell him that I wasn't going to services. I talked to Dan, and he told me what had happened that night and how he was involved. Stanley Kramer was also there, and Dan talked to Christopher Jones alone a few times. Later on that evening, a lot of Dan's other friends came over, but before then, Christopher Jones, Stanley Kramer, Dan and I sat out on his back porch and talked about everything that had happened. At this time, Christopher was called to speak to Sergeant Gray. Chris came back and Sergeant Gray also talked to us. He said if we ever needed to talk to him or needed to say anything to anyone, we could call him. He also reiterated that we should not speak to the media if asked. At one point that night, Jeff, Michael, Charlie, Martin, and myself were told by Dan that he would show us where Lisa's body was found. We went with Dan at around 8 p.m., and we went to the sidewalk, and Brett Carreau was there, 
and he was just walking. And we all went with Dan and he showed us where he saw the bicycle from the night before. A police car came over and took down all of our names and asked us not to come by there again because we could either get contaminated with evidence or we could mess up what was there. That's basically everything I can think of. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, 
Fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. How much have you seen Dan Dryford and Lisa Pruitt this summer? I got home from Germany on July 22nd, 1990. And at this particular time, Daniel was at the Unitarian Convention. He got home the following weekend. And from that time on, we spent a lot of our time together. That is until he went to the hospital. I was with him the night before he went to the hospital at 12 a.m. At this time, Dan and I had planned for me to come back over at about 1 that night. We had no idea what was going to happen the next day with Dan going to the hospital. I came back at 1 a.m. and I expect to see Dan sitting outside waiting for me. When I came up, though, the lights inside Dan's house were on, which was a surprise. I went to the back and saw Dan's father yelling at Dan because he would not go to sleep, I guess. Fifteen minutes later, his father finally stopped yelling at Dan. Dan came out and said everything was okay. We went downstairs to his howling commando room, and we talked until around 3 a.m. about a lot of things, such as Lisa and how much he loved her and how upset he was with his dad. Everything you would expect from two strange teenagers. I went home around 3 a.m., and the following day, Dan was put into the hospital. Dan and I corresponded through letters and phone calls at the hospital. I got Dan's payphone number from Deb Dreifert. I called it a lot. But it wasn't until the following Monday that a kid answered and for some reason thought I was Dan's father. From this time onward, without me saying it, they thought I was his father. I would call just about every day. One time Dan came home and I saw him. Actually, more than one time. Another time I found out from Dan that he would be going to the Severance bowling lanes. Lisa and I went to see him and we asked for the lane right next to it because it was supposed to be our lucky lane. Here, Lisa and Dan talked, but we weren't supposed to know each other. So I had a lot of correspondence with Dan. 
For Lisa, I spent almost every day with her. We would talk a lot about Dan because we were mutual friends, and she would come over, or I would go over there almost every day. We sent him packages. She jumped in our pool with her clothes on, and we basically had a great time. I think I've said just about everything about the summer and Dan and Lisa. Could you describe what you know about the late night meeting between Dan and Lisa and how you found out about the meeting? Yeah, this was a normal thing for Dan and Lisa to meet each other late at night. When I was over at Chris's apartment on September 13th, I realized that Dan and Lisa would probably be meeting each other. The next day after the murder, I was talking to either Dan or Chris, and they told me one of them uh, that Dan had told Chris that he was welcome to come also. If I remember correctly, Tex also told Lisa would be coming over that night. Chris did not go over that night. And that's as far as I believe I know about that. Chris also said that he was very sad that, I, that he didn't go over that night because he hoped that he could have done something to the attacker and Lisa would not have been murdered. Have you ever gone over to the Dreyford's house late at night? And if so, how did you get into the house or get Dan's attention to let him know you were there? Every time that I had gone over there, Dan and I had planned on me coming. Uh, The first time coming over there was this past summer in 1990. Dan would always be waiting on the porch. And when I came over, we would either talk on the porch or go inside and talk, usually in the commando room. One other thing Dan mentioned to me about this night was that he had not even remembered at the time that he was talking to his father, that Lisa was coming over. The only time where Dan was not waiting for me was the time that I talked to about when it was Dan's last evening before he went to the hospital. I know that in the past, Dan and Kim Rathbone and some of his friends had met in either Dan's backyard or Kim's backyard, but I don't know how they signaled each other. Are you aware of the incident where Kevin Young stormed out of Arabica? And if so, could you describe what you know about the incident and what you know about Kevin Young? Sure. At around 10.30 p.m. on September 13, 1990, Kevin Young Stormed out of Arabica. That's basically what I've heard. This is not unusual for Kevin Young, who I consider a bit crazy. And I say this because in the past, he has had a lot of problems with women and in relationships. In fact, I remember in my 1990 yearbook, Kevin said, quote, I hope you have better luck with women than I do, unquote. Kevin and I saw a few days after I had gotten home from Germany in Arabica. He said that if I saw Dan to tell him how he hated him and how he was mad at him. He basically just told me how much of an idiot Dan was. I heard either from Kevin Young or someone else that he had liked Lisa and that he had hated both Dan and Lisa and that he had wished that he could kill both of them. Of course, when you hear something like that being said, usually do not take it seriously because most people have said something like that, especially Kevin Young, who has said that about many people. It would not be out of place to be totally surprised if Kevin did kill someone. Did it make you uneasy when Kevin Young said he wanted to kill Dan and Lisa? I can say that many things Kevin has said has made me feel uneasy. But now that I think about it, I remember this pretty vividly. Because he was talking about two of my best friends. And when Dan came home from his Unitarian convention, why Kevin had said that right now, I don't remember what Dan's response was. Could you describe how Chris Young, Kenny Workman, Danny Dreifert, Stan Kramer, Kevin Young, and yourself fit together as friends? Chris, Dan, and I are close friends. Stan is not a close friend of Dan. He's more someone we'd see up at Arabica every once in a while. 
texts Deb's boyfriend, and because he was always at the Dreyfurt's residence, Dan got to know him better and talk to him more. I had been out with Deb, Dan, and Tex bowling, and a few other times. But as friends, Tex wasn't someone Dan usually hung out with unless his sister was around. Kevin, most of all, was not hardly even a friend of Dan's or any of the rest of us. He was more of a person that we saw at Arabica, who we didn't particularly like. I had nothing against him. I just thought he was a bit crazy. Did Dan Dreifer invite you over to his house on the evening of Thursday, September 13th, 1990? He did not invite me over on Thursday, September 13th, 1990. I think he may have said I could come over for a few minutes before he had dinner, but I'm not sure about that. Have you ever heard or have you ever attended a party at Dan Dreifer's where Robitussin was consumed by everybody there? Uh, Actually, yes. I did not have any Robitussin, but one night Rebecca Boatwright and Andy Conrad were at Dan's house. I called Dan up that night, and he said I could stop by. He told me he had some uh, four ounces, I believe, and how Becca and Andy had some at Becca's house. When I got over there, Becca and Andy both said how it wasn't really doing anything for them. Dan said it usually takes a half hour before you begin to trip. Dan ran with them in the backyard in circles and tried to get tried to get them to trip he went to a bench or something at the back of the yard and would talk with them and try to trip with them or something he tried to do it with me even though i didn't have any robitussin i kept laughing and he said it obviously wasn't working if i was laughing their behavior seemed normal i guess eventually they did trip but i was never able to tell they seemed normal to me did dan Dreifer ever tell you any strange effects he got from consuming robitussin Yes. Uh, He told me many times. He wanted me to someday try it with him once, but I told him I would never do it. He said that there were stages to the Robitussin. There was one main thing that he said it did for you. It just made you feel like everything was out there. I'm not sure. He used to say one specific thing, but for some reason I just can't remember. It was not a big change in what you could think, he would say. It was the added things you saw. All I know is that he has had one bad trip. I don't know how many times he's done it, but I know the first time he did it, it was at the SUSSI convention he attended. Tell me what you know about the relationship between Dan Dreifert and Kim Rathbone. Well, they've always been friends and just friends. In fact, sometimes they didn't talk for a long time, but they were still friends. I'd ask him how he wouldn't talk to her and if she just lived right behind him. But he said he just didn't see her. She was a friend of both Dan and his family. I remember during the summer, Dan's parents and sister went to Toronto while Dan stayed with a friend named Jamie Greenfield. And Kim got the mail for them. They've just been friends at times during middle school, 7th and 8th grade. They would meet late at night, especially when Judy Miller was at Kim's house. And when Brian Keating was at Dan's house, because at the time Dan was going out with Judy and Kim was going out with Brian, they have been good friends. That is Kim and Dan. How did you learn that Kim Rathbone had heard screams on the night that Lisa Pruitt was murdered? Mm, Well, if I remember correctly, uh, Kim Cole was talking to Kim Rathbone when I got over to Catherine's house on the morning of the 14th of September. 
When she got off the phone, she told us how Kim thought she could have done something because she thought she had heard screams that night. Kim Cole said that it sounded like Kim Rathbone felt that it was partly her fault. I also talked to Brian Keating, who is still Kim Rathbone's boyfriend, and he told me how Kim Rathbone had called him around 7 a.m. on the 14th and told him what happened to Lisa and called back right after they had hung up and said that she thought she had also heard screaming that night of the 13th. Do you recall who mentioned to you that Tex Workman's footprints may have been found near the murder scene? I believe that was Dan Dreifert. To your knowledge, how did Dan Dreifert's father feel about Dan's relationship with Lisa Pruitt? As far as I know, he had no problem with it. I don't think Dan's father ever met Lisa. I remember talking to Lisa about Dan's father and the way he treated Dan. And Lisa said that she had never met Dan's father when he's been like that. And she might have said that she never met Dan's father at all. But I do know they met when Lisa went out with Dan one weekend when Dan was home from the hospital. How did you feel about Dan Dreifer dating Lisa Pruitt? Well, I remember the day that I found out. I believe it was April 4th, 1990. And that was the day after they decided to go together. Uh, Lisa came in a German class and told me, and I was so excited. I remember I was so happy because Dan and Lisa are two of my closest friends, and I felt so highly of both of them. They broke up right before I came home from Germany. In fact, I think it was the day I came home from Germany, and I saw Lisa right when I got off the plane because Regina was going to stay with them. I asked how Dan was, and she said that they didn't want to talk about it right now. For the next two or so weeks, I spent all my time with Dan and Lisa separately. I kept telling them how I hoped they got back together because the reason they broke up was a reason that didn't really matter. Dan was just confused and really just wanted some time alone for a little while. And Dan was not home, though, when I had seen Lisa. And from the first time I saw him in Shaker after I got back, he told me how much he loved Lisa and how he wanted to get back together with her. Lisa wanted to get back together with him, but she kept saying how everyone else thought she should be a certain way since they broke up. Dan and I were driven over to Lisa's one night by some friends, and Dan and Lisa talked, and it was obvious that that they wanted to get back together. In fact, if I remember correctly, either that night or the following night, Dan went over there. In fact, I remember he went over there a few times late at night without her parents knowing during the summer. On August 3rd, 1990, they were a couple again. So they didn't spend that much time away from each other, really. Uh, They wanted to be together, and from all my time with them, I think they really did love each other. Next up in the hot seat is 17-year-old Rebecca Boatwright, and the subject of the conversation is Kevin Young. So I know Dan Dreifert because two summers ago, I went to Germany with his sister, Debbie Dreifert. Debbie and I became close friends, and through her, I met her brother. And after that, Dan Dreifert and I became pretty good friends. Thursday, September 13th, 1990, Dan called me at about 8.20 p.m. He had asked me if I wanted to come over later and told me a bunch of people were coming over later. And I said, like who? And he said, Chris Jones, Lisa Pruitt, and maybe Kevin Young, and maybe Dan Messinger. 
I told him I didn't think I could get out. I was tired and I wanted to get to bed. And that was the end of our conversation. Friday, September 14th, 1990, during first period at the high school, Dr. Rumba said that Lisa Pruitt had been involved in a homicide last night. And since nobody really knew how it happened, the basic rumor was that she had been hit on the head with a blunt object and her body had been found on the sidewalk corner of South Woodland and Lee. Later, at around 1.30 p.m., I went up to Arbica at Shaker Square, and since I was waiting for Debbie Dreifert to come in, and since Kevin Young was the only one I knew up there, I sat down and talked to him. Basically, he said, has your day been as bad as everybody else's? And I said, well, it was pretty depressing. I said, it doesn't seem like the type of thing that would happen in Shaker, and I was really worried for Dan Dreifert, since no doubt he's probably a suspect. Somehow or other, we got onto the topic of rape. I said, well, if she was raped, isn't there a possibility that they will find some semen sample on her body? And Kevin said, I don't think she was raped. I said, well, just assuming from that, they will be able to prove who did it. And he said, well, tests like that are 100% accurate. So if Dan Dreifert did it, then chances are they probably know already. But I really don't think she was raped. Then I told him that I had heard she had been pulled from her bike around the corner on South Woodland before Lee and that she had been hit on the head with a blunt object. He said, no, I think she was stabbed. I said, well, that's not what I heard. And he said, I'm pretty sure she was stabbed. Then I said, it would make sense that her bike would have been found in the area, like before you reach Lee, since from what I heard, her body had been found on the sidewalk on the corner of South Woodland and Lee. Kevin said he thought they found it around there, in the field nearby, around that area. I said, not that it really matters, since nobody really knows except the police. He said, yes, you're probably right. Then I went to get a pink lemonade, and when I came back, I said, some extremely psychotic person had to have done this. And he said, what makes you think that? And I said, well, it's not the type of thing a perfectly sane person does. Then he sort of like sat up and said really loudly and really quickly, well, I would only kill in self-defense. Then he like switched to the Persian Gulf issue. He said, what does Fabrizio think about what's going on? And I said, He thinks that they should reinstitute the draft and to add women to it, which I think is pretty unfair. This was said pretty jokingly. He said, why? And I said, since women are obviously the superior sex, I don't think we should be forced to go off to war and be killed. He said, but you think people who are my age and are about to be headed off to college should be forced to go there and be killed? And I said, well, that's what Fabrizio thinks. And Kevin started rolling his eyes and kept saying, my God, I should storm his house and kill him. Then I said somewhat jokingly, as long as I'm not shipped off, and he said, oh, because you don't think women should be killed. And I said, exactly. He said, I don't know about that. I can think of a few women I would like to see dead. I said, like who? He said, the only thing I want to know is if the U.S. is in the Persian Gulf because of NATO pride or oil. And he kept on babbling about this. I got bored, so I told him I had to go pick up my mother, which I did. When you talk to Kevin Young at Arabica on Friday afternoon, Did he tell you how he learned of the death of Lisa Pruitt? No. Did Kevin mention anything about being invited over to Dan Dreyford's house the night before? No. Did Kevin Young ever indicate directly to you any kind of romantic feelings towards Lisa Pruitt? Yeah, but it was quite a while ago. It was like in the context like Dan was a god because he could get any woman he wanted. And I said, why do you care? And he said, because she has a great ass. I said, why do you like her or something? And he said, I'm not going to tell you because you'll go tell Dan. I said, I don't care one way or another how people feel sexually towards Lisa. 
And he said, if you were a guy, you would. Have you ever known Kevin Young or have you ever seen Kevin Young carrying any type of weapon? No. On Friday afternoon at Arabica, when you spoke to Kevin Young, did he mention any conversation he had with Kenny Workman the night before? No. Is there anything else that you wish to add to this statement? No. Finally, the police speak to 16-year-old Christopher Jones, a close friend of Dan Dreifert's. Last Thursday, September 13, 1990, at the end of 10th period, I was met outside my 10th period classroom by Dan Dreifert and Lisa Pruitt and several friends. I spoke to Dan and went to my locker, got my bike out, and as I was riding out, I ran into Dan Dreifert again outside the school. We rode our bikes around the school and met up with Dan Messinger. We rode over to Dan Messinger's house, and he picked up his bike, and we rode over to my apartment. We stayed there until about 4.10 p.m., Then they both rode off on their bikes, and I ran back to school for fencing. I got back from fencing at about 6.40 p.m. I had a note saying that Lisa Pruitt called at 5.30 p.m. I called her back, but her phone was busy. I figured she wanted to get a hold of Dan Dreifert and had already gotten a hold of him, and so I didn't call her back again. Then I got a call from Dan Dreifert at about 8 p.m. We talked for a while, and he said that he was going to have some people over later and that I should give him a call if I wanted to come. I called him back at about 10 p.m. He said that Tex was over at his house and that Lisa might show up later and that I could stop by if I wanted to and give him a call later. I called him back at about a quarter to 11 p.m. or so and said that I wasn't going to come over. Then I finished a paper I was working on and went to bed. I went to bed between 11 p.m. and 12 midnight. I got a call at 6.30 a.m. on September 14, 1990 from Dan Messinger saying that Lisa Pruitt had been murdered. I didn't really believe him, and I tried going back to sleep. And I got a call about five minutes later from Kathleen Schultz saying the same thing. I asked her if I could go over to her house because some other people were over there at the time. And I called back Dan Messinger and asked him if he wanted to go over to Kathleen Schultz's house. He said he could pick me up, and he picked me up about five minutes later, and we drove over there. We heard on the news that Lisa died. We got over to Kathleen's house, and Kathleen was there, Shelby Hyven, and, Kirst- and Kirsten from Germany, and Regina, who was Lisa's foreign exchange student, and Kim Cole. We stayed there about a half an hour, and all the girls left except for Kirsten, and then Brian and Adam Keaton came over, and Jeff Michael and Charlie Martin also came over. We talked for about a half an hour. Then I got a ride back to my apartment from the Keatings. I stayed there until halfway through second period. Then I went to school. I met up with some people there, and we talked to several teachers about the death. Then we walked around until third period. I went to third period German class. About half the class were close friends of Lisa's. Half were regular students in that class. We were talked to by several counselors and ministers about Lisa's death. After that class ended, I went outside for a while, about a half a period, and sat under a tree. I came back into school, into the band room, where about 15 close friends of Lisa were gathered, talking about her. We split up after about a half an hour, and then went to talk to certain teachers, and we got back together and got rides to Catherine Schultz's house. There, we talked to about 20 people at Catherine's house. We ate lunch and talked about things there. About 3 p.m., myself, Jennifer Margulies, and Judy Miller, and Rachel Lewenthal went over to Dan Dreifert's house. Dan wasn't home, 
The police were searching all around the house, and Brett Corot was there. About 15 minutes later, Mrs. Dreifert came in and asked if it was all right to come into the house. Then she went back and came back to the house with the car with Mr. Dreifert, Dan Dreifert, and Debbie Dreifert. We went inside. We went into Dan's TV room, basically sat there for a while, and then a little bit later, Dan Messinger and Haley Warren showed up after going to a press conference at the City Hall. We talked about what they had heard there, and eventually we watched the news. Dan was pretty angry about being a suspect, or the way they portrayed that. Pretty much from there, many people came and left Dan's house that night. Eventually, me and Dan Messinger got a ride from Scott Fierro to the Pruitt's house. We talked to Mr. Pruitt. We went up into their house and spent a little time in Lisa's room. On the next episode, we'll come back to Chris Jones's interview with police. But until then, think on what we've just learned. In the hours after Lisa Pruitt's murder, Dan Dryford is the main suspect. A group of Dan's friends meet up to discuss the case. The kids don't want it to be their friend. Nobody wants it to be Dan Dryford. After that meeting, the teens tell police it was Kevin Young. From that moment on, the only suspect in the eyes of the police is the weird kid in school, Kevin Young. Though not one piece of evidence links him to the crime. While all this is going on, two of Dan's friends talk their way into Lisa's home to be alone in her room. In what world does that request make sense? What was the purpose of that visit? Was something taken from that room? All we know for sure is that police never followed up on this detail. They never again asked Chris what he was doing in Lisa Pruitt's bedroom. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.